0: Father in heaven, uh, we need um, so much more. I need so much more than clarity. I need so much more than being relevant. Uh, I need uh, so uh, much more uh, than being, having the ability to keep attention. <laughs> um, and Lord, really, I, I need more than just saying what the Bible says. Lord, what I need is your spirit. Uh, So, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit as your mouthpiece tonight? Help me uh, to say nothing more than what your word says. Uh, And Father, I do pray for my friends, uh, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit as they hear. Lord, that you would make applications that there's no way I would even know how to make, uh, because you are alive and active in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, Have you ever walked into a house that's been vacant for a long time? I mean a really long time. Uh, Last weekend, I was in northern Kentucky, and um, when I go to northern Kentucky, usually we go to my dad's land. My dad's got some acres, it's about 15 minutes uh, from the house I grew up in where they live, and uh, on that piece of land, there's an old house, it was built in 1932. My dad's owned the property since I was about six, so about 30 years he's owned it, and for just a few years has there actually been a tenant. Uh, but a lot of times, when we've gone into the house over the last 30 years, uh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Uh, I mean, it's something about like a haunted house almost, this little bitty old farmhouse. Uh, the, 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 the floors creak so much that I feel like I'm going to fall into the crawl space, usually. It smells god-awful in this house. Uh, there's cobwebs everywhere because the only person, whoever goes in the house, is me. Uh, and that's about once every three years. So, uh, it, it is really a terror. Now think about that kind of house if you've been in that kind of place before. Alright, now think about a house that's lived in. Now I'm not talking about fixer-upper, Joanna Gaines, nice, luxury kind of house. Uh, I'm talking about just a house that's got life to it. It's, not, it, it. it's not perfect, it's not spotless, it's not luxurious, but it's lived in. There's some energy about that kind of house. Think about the difference between those two kind of houses. Alright, take a car. A car that's been in a garage for a long time, not run. What that car ends up like. You can't even start that thing if it's been sitting long enough. And think about the car that you drive usually. One kind of house there's an energy about, the other kind of house there's not. The car that sits idle for a long time has no energy, but the one that's regularly driven does. It sounds like a lot of Christians to me. It sounds like a lot of churches to me. Some have life and some don't. What's the reason? How how do we know the difference? And this is what we see in Acts. We see a church in the book of Acts that's bustling with energy. It's not perfect. It's not spotless. It's not Joanna Gaines nice. It's not pristine or luxurious, but it's lively. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you see the seeds of the plants. The seeds of the church are planted. And then you see those seeds grow in the book of Acts. In the gospel, you see Jesus giving life. And in Acts, you see Jesus giving power. In the gospels, you see a perfect person in Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, you see imperfect people living the Christian life. So friends, let me ask you, do you want this kind of power? Do you want this kind of energy to invade your life? Maybe your life feels like a vacant house. Maybe it feels like an idle car. Maybe it feels uh, like a glass of L8 that's been sitting there for two days. If that's you, then Acts has answers for you. It shows you how your life can count, it shows you what life is like when you're on an adventure with Jesus Christ. So let's read uh, the introduction to the book of Acts, and then we'll get into our text. Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. And the first book. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Um, if you have a pen, if you have a highlighter, you need to uh, underline, circle, put arrows towards the word "began." Began, all the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So do you have the picture? Jesus died, and Jesus is risen, uh, and Jesus goes back up into heaven. But between the time that Jesus risen and the time that Jesus went back into heaven, he was around for 40 days. All right? And verse 4, And while staying with them, he's talking about the disciples, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you eat at this time? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. All right, so I got three points tonight. Uh, the kingdom, the knuckleheads, and the king. The kingdom, the knuckleheads, and the king. The kingdom is going to be verses 1 to 5. Uh, the knuckleheads, verses 6 to 8. And the king, verses 9 to 11. So the kingdom. Uh, so uh, this, um, the book of Acts is written by Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, so in some ways, uh, the Gospel of Luke is like First Luke. You know, you have First Samuel, Second Samuel, uh, you have First, Second, Third John. You have these things in the Bible. You could almost do that. This is First Luke, and Acts is now Second or Second Luke. Uh, that's what it feels like. And Theophilus is the one who's addressed in both those books. And in the book of Luke, in the gospel, you'll see that a major theme in his book is the kingdom. And he picks up on this theme of the kingdom in 2 Luke, in Acts. It's a a major theme for him. You see it right there in verse 3. You see it in verse 3? He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So you wonder, what was Jesus doing those 40 days? Well, what he was doing is that he was with his disciples and he was teaching about the kingdom. That's what he was doing. And then you see in verse 5, he talks about the kingdom again. For you baptized, Lord, but you will be baptized with this, or verse, verse 6, sorry, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? See, what Luke is doing here with this double mention of, uh, of, of kingdom is that he's putting one bookend at, at the front of his book with the other bookend. The other bookend is in chapter 28. He uses kingdom twice there. So he's wanting us to say, he's wanting us to really focus in, what is the kingdom of God? Because this has got major implications. The king has now departed. So now that the king's departed, does that mean the kingdom has departed too? What does the kingdom look like now that the king isn't here? How will all the promises that the king gave us be carried out now that he's not present with us in body? What about all these promises of the Old Testament of blessing and peace for God's people. Well, What about all these things that happened in the Old Testament, all these institutions and rituals and ceremonies of Israel? What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen with the leadership that God gave the people of Israel? Is it going to change now that Jesus has departed? How about God's people? Who are they? Are they still just Israelites? Are they still just the Jews? What does that look like? Well, those are the kinds of questions about the kingdom that Luke is going to answer for us. But before we answer some of these questions in the rest of the series, uh, we've got to have a really good understanding of what God's kingdom actually is. Uh, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God refers to God's universal sovereignty. It means his rule over all creation, all that he has made. He's the sovereign king. So in this sense... Given that all are under his rule, all are in God's kingdom. Okay? God's kingdom, his sovereign rule over everything, includes everyone. But there's another sense in which the kingdom of God narrows down when, we get into, when we're in the Old Testament. The Old Testament anticipates a time when these enemies, who are still under God's sovereign rule, and the, and the enemies of God's people, that they're going to be defeated. And when they're defeated, all of the people who are in God's kingdom will be blessed. Completely blessed. So the arrival of the kingdom means that his saving rule has been promised. That has been promised throughout the Old Testament has now come. And one must receive the kingdom in order to to participate in the kingdom's blessings. And this is what Luke has in mind. So you get it. All of creation. But his saving purposes is just for part of his creation. That's what happens because of sin. God didn't have to have any saving purposes for us, but in His grace, He has. And so what does it look like to get into the kingdom? What's life like in this kingdom? Well, that's what Jesus was all about in the book of Luke, and that's what Jesus is going to be all about in the book of Acts. If you go to Mark 1.15, Jesus, at the very beginning of His ministry, He says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus, He's at the the very beginning of His ministry, He's not talking about some future reality when the kingdom is going to come, but he's saying that it's present right now because he is present. He is the king. So we see this kingdom begin to spread as you read throughout the gospel. Jesus begins to heal diseases. That's part of being in the kingdom. Jesus begins to forgive sins. That's part of being in the kingdom. And then we see, the, 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 we see this kingdom continue to expand when he dies and he raises again. Because when he dies, he raises again. He's defeating sin. He's defending Satan. He's defeating the evil powers of this world. So Roman Jerusalem couldn't hold him down. He defeated him. Our sin couldn't hold him down. He defeated him. The power of Satan was conquered. He defeated him. So here, the kingdom's here. The kingdom is at hand. The saving purposes of God have begun to spread. But as he's talking about his kingdom, Jesus is talking about how his people are going to suffer. He's talking about persecutions guaranteed. He promises that the poor are still going to be among them, even though that he is present. He says that evil is going to continue to persist in your hearts when you're in the kingdom. So, do you see this overlap? Christ's first coming brings the kingdom and brings his saving rule, but his first coming does not bring the kingdom in completeness. So in Jesus, the kingdom's been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. In Jesus, the kingdom begins, but it's incomplete. In Jesus, right now, the kingdom is already, and it is not yet. So as the kingdom of God, we live in this present age where sin still exists in our society and in our hearts. But we belong to a heavenly kingdom that Jesus has brought, and we enjoy it by anticipating The age that is to come where sin will be no more. This is the kingdom that Jesus talked about. Jesus was very clear uh, about this overlap. He was very clear that all wasn't uh, going to be perfect in this overlap of period. But there's a big problem. The people that he's talking uh, about the kingdom to, the disciples... Uh, that was not their expectation. They had no idea that there was going to be an overlap. They just thought that when the kingdom comes, when the king raises again from the dead, that the kingdom is going to come in completeness, that there will be no more suffering for God's people, that his enemies will be defeated. And so that's why Jesus had to drill these things into their heads for 40 days. But again, these people are knuckleheads. They didn't sink into them. That's why they asked the dumb question in verse 6. You see the dumb question? Now, Jesus has been promising suffering all along. He's been been telling them this is what life is going to be like. There's going to be this overlap. His enemies will will be uh, defeated, but they will still be present. And they ask the question in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, imagine those 40 days. Forty days, disciples are sitting around. They're probably eating a lot of meals with Jesus. Jesus is teaching them hours and hours on end. He's probably reminding them of things that he said before the cross. And you can just see them walking home, can't you? They've been with Jesus all day. They're going back to their own beds. And they're like, man, Jesus keeps talking. and, And the brother rose from the dead. And he's still not present around here. We still got Roman guards. We still got those idiots, the Pharisees. They're in charge. Why isn't Jesus becoming president around here? Well, it's because they're looking for a political kingdom. And Jesus is not going to be their political leader. He's not going to be their military leader. And this isn't the first time that Jesus' followers wanted him to restore order. Two different places, Mark 10, Luke 22. Disciples have ideas for Jesus. Bad idea to have ideas for Jesus. They have an idea for Jesus. They say, uh, Jesus, uh, we really want to be in your presidential cabinet. Jesus, we'd really uh, liked uh chief to be in front of our name. We want to be on your executive team. And so they ask a question about what the kingdom's going to be like. Because when they ask this question, they're thinking, hey, we're the, we're the, closest, we're the closest people to you. We're all going to be vice presidents around here. And Jesus is very clear what his kingdom is going to be like, that they're not, going to be in the, in, they're not going to be a part of his presidential cabinet, they're not going to be a part of his executive team, but they're going to play a different role according to verse 8. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Not executive team, not presidential cabinet, witnesses. In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So let me reword it this way. Once Jesus has ascended into heaven, what is his kingdom like? I'm going to say this. Jesus is going to reign by the witness of his people and the power of his Holy Spirit. What's Jesus' kingdom going to look like when he goes into heaven? Jesus is going to reign by the witness of his people and the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to reign by the witness of his people and the power of his Holy Spirit. I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus is going to reign by the witness of his people and the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, I know kids are the best at asking questions. You know that, don't you? Like, what, what, how, am I, how am I know Jesus is real if I can't see him? Haven't you asked that question? Is you're really honest, but you're afraid to say it because you don't want to sound like a kid? Well, Jesus tells us right here what his kingdom is like. What is, how is Jesus to be experienced? How is he to be known once he's ascended? He's going to make his kingdom spread by the witness of his people and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, remember, I told you arrows, highlighter, circle, that word began. So, if you've got in Luke, here's what Jesus began to do in Luke you had his birth. You had his life, his teachings, the miracles. You had his death. You had his resurrection. And then you had his ascension. At the very end of Luke, that's the last part you'll see in Luke is his ascension. And he says, hey, in Luke, my first book, these are all the things that Jesus began to do. Here's the implication. The book of Acts is everything Jesus continues to do. That Jesus is still alive. And he's alive in the life of his people by the power of his spirit as they give witness to the truth of him. But notice what our role is. Our role is to be a witness. A witness. Think about the word witness. A witness, their only responsibility is to tell the truth. They don't have to be a great public speaker. They don't have to be really convincing. They don't have to be good looking. They don't have to be smart. They don't even have to make a judgment on a legal case. Their only responsibility is to tell the truth. So somehow, here's what Jesus does. He takes us telling the truth about who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his returning a second time to make all things right. He takes that witness and spreads his kingdom. And it's spread like wildfire for 2,000 years. But being a witness has two parts. There's the witness of our lives and the witness of our words. The witness of our lives and the witness of our words. Now, we usually think, if you've been around the church a long time, that being a witness is a, the speaking part. And we usually think the speaking part is the hard part. If not the hard part, the important part. And so as a witness, we're really afraid we're going to say the wrong thing. So we think we got to learn a whole bunch of theology. But other people who also think it's important, see, you, you think it's important and you're insecure about it. Other people think it's important... And they know it. They, they're not uncomfortable being a witness. They think they've got all the right answers. They're very comfortable in this setting, giving verbal witness to the truths of Jesus. But sometimes people in this camp over here, the people are very comfortable doing this, their lives tell a very different story than the ones that their mouths proclaim. And so both of these, whether you're insecure about giving witness for Jesus or you think you've got it down, you've, over, you've underestimated The power of your life. Friends, in our lives, if we give witness to a a lost world, a world that doesn't know Jesus, a world that's not in the saving kingdom, our lives speak a lot of words. Uh, Asking an unbeliever, asking someone who doesn't know Jesus to forgive you when you've wronged them is a witness. A witness could be a a lost world watching you suffer with hope. It could look a hundred different ways, but that's witnessing with our lives. How's your witness going? How's the verbal witness going? How's the living witness going for you? You get to this place in the book and you're like, man got a bunch of knuckleheads asking a dumb question in verse 6. And then Jesus gives them all the responsibility for the kingdom in some ways. You're going to be a witness. (laughs) How is he going to do that? Well, he does it by his Holy Spirit. That's where the Spirit comes in. Jesus tells them that they're going to stay in Jerusalem. And from the time of Jesus' ascension until the time the Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2, it's about 10 days. And boy. These men were transformed when the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. You had Peter. In the Gospels, he's this half-hearted, big-mouthed, flaky fisherman. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2, he began to speak boldly about Jesus. That's power. Then you look at Peter and John. In, the book of, in chapter 3, they heal a lame beggar. Power. Luke chapter 4, you've got Peter and John again. They're, they're standing up against charges to the same people that crucified Jesus. These people uh, who are bringing them up on charges order them to quit speaking about Jesus, and Peter and John refuse to comply. Power. Chapter 7, you've got a different character. You've got this, the, the, a deacon. You've got a man named Stephen. Stephen is stoned to death for speaking about Jesus. Jesus. And he stands so resolutely in the face of his stoning that this image burned in Saul's mind. Saul was the one who got this whole crowd together to stone him. And in the end, the way that he suffered, that just couldn't leave Saul alone. And in the end, he's converted. And so the chief persecutor of the church, whose name is Saul, becomes the church's biggest missionary. And his name is Paul. Power. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, are leading a worship service in prison when uh, an earthquake comes and frees them. Power. I could go on and on and on. So how can a bunch of knuckleheads like Peter and John and Silas and Paul be the cornerstones of the early church? What's well, the Spirit? The Spirit is the one who makes the difference in them. And the same is true for you. When you see this is the way God's kingdom expands, you want to get on board. It adds electricity to your life. I've told this story a lot of times. I honestly couldn't remember if I've told you guys. So I'm just going for it. Um, I grew up uh, in a Christian home, and God got a hold of me. I had plenty of problems. I'm still a recovering Pharisee. And, um, but when I went to college, uh, I, I really wanted to walk with Jesus. And um, I went to UK, and when you go to UK, at least back in uh, the 90s, um, you turned in a housing form. The housing form had a first, second, and third choice. First, second, third choice for me said Joe Rammelsberg, Joe Hibbett, Brad Warning. Joe Rammelsberg, Joe Hibbett, Brad Warning. And if the person that you put as your first option, also, you know, so Joe, if Joe put me as his first option, we were all but guaranteed to be roommates. I turned that in at about Christmas time. Well, that spring, I had a friend of mine that I went to high school with, his name was Dave. Uh, Dave wanted to go to UK, and uh, Dave um, said, Marsh, if I don't live with you, uh, I'm gonna end up dead at UK. Uh, you're my only hope of uh, walking this line here. And I, I said, great, because I love Dave. Dave was really entertaining. <laughs> and, um, and so Dave put me as his first option. And um, I had to call Residence Life, uh, and I said, hey, I need to, uh, all three of those choices, Joe Randlesburg, Joe Hibbert, Brad Warner, I need to take them off. Joe Randlesburg, I told him about the whole situation, he didn't care. Guys aren't nearly as wound as tight about roommates. Um, so I, uh, so Dave has me as his number one, I've got him as uh, my number one, and the, the, the picture of us chumming it together our freshman year in a two person room was the dream we had in mind, but that's not what happened. Now Dave was my roommate. But we got a third roommate. The third roommate was Brad Warning, number three. Now, remember, I told Residence Life to take all those people off. And they had to take Joe off because Joe didn't end up being my roommate. So somehow, Brad Warning became our third roommate. And me and Dave were like, oh, no. Because Brad was wild. And we knew uh, that things were going to be, who knew knew what was going to happen. So first night, we're in the dorms. There's only one way in, one way out of Hagen Hall back in the day. The old Hagen Hall's not there anymore. One way in, one way out. He went in, and when you walk in, you, there, you walk by uh, the, the RA who's on duty. And these RAs, they've been around for a while. Uh, they knew the trick of the square backpack. So Brad walks in with a square backpack. The RA sees him, follows him at a distance, and about 60 seconds after Brad entered the room, there's a knock on the door. When there was a knock on the door, it was Brad and his friend and me and my friend, four of us in the room, knock on the door. He says, can I see uh, the case of beer that was in your backpack just a moment ago, sir? And it was just laying right there on the bed. And uh, the way the rule worked is that we all got written up. We hadn't had a chance to get out of there yet. Uh, we, if he we, had just given us a couple more minutes, we would have, and, uh, but we didn't. So we had to pay a $60 fine and had to go to an eight-hour AA class. And at this point, I'm a recovering Pharisee. I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life. And so here we are. We just went on with the night. Uh, I, I mean, that was probably the most I'd ever had at that point in my life. i have been saving up all summer. 60 bucks was 60 bucks. And I didn't love college football then, so I didn't mind missing a Saturday. And um, so here my friend are. We're, you know, We just go on with life for the next few days. And Brad feels terrible. He won't even look us in the eyes. And about a week after this incident, he goes to my friend that I was with in the room, and he said, If you guys would have done that to me, I would have whooped you. And you guys have just continued to be nice to me. Why is that? And my friend told him about Jesus. And Brad was converted. That was 19 years ago. And Brad's still walking with Jesus. See, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Wasn't our idea. Wasn't Brad's idea. But that's what happens. See, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a ministry guru. You don't have to have a big personality to witness to Jesus. It's the ordinary things of life, it's the things like your housing forms that give an opportunity to witness. It's unbelievable. That the Holy Spirit can somehow use the fumbling about of language by knuckleheads like me and you to advance his kingdom. No one gets a pass here. You can't say, I don't have the gift of evangelism and get out of being a witness for Jesus. You can't say, I've got a lot of problems in my life that disqualify me from being used by the Holy Spirit. Really? Do you really think that your sin is more powerful than the Holy Spirit? But friends, there's one qualification to being a part of this kind of kingdom work. Just one. You've got to be in the kingdom. And to get into the kingdom, you've got to know the king. And we see this king in verses 9 to 11. You see that Jesus never dies. He goes to heaven. He sits on his rightful throne. And now he's ruling through the witness of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's still alive. He's still inviting people like you and people like me into his kingdom. But what does it take to get in this kingdom? What does it take to know the king? Well, Luke, in 1st Luke, in his gospel, he tells us. Uh, He gives us two really great pictures of what it it looks like to enter the kingdom. Uh, The first one's a parable. It's a parable about two men who go up to pray. One's a tax collector and one's a Pharisee. When they go up to pray, the, the Pharisee, when he goes up and prays, he pretty much uh, thanks God. He says, thank you, Lord, of how I've turned out. <laughs> He's really arrogant about the status of his life. He gives God credit for it. He's not an atheist. There's some gratitude in his heart for the Lord. And a Pharisee was a religious leader. It's the kind of person you'd want to be your next-door neighbor. They were never going to get in trouble. They'd probably cut your grass when you're out of town. And then you had a tax collector over here tax collector were the scums of the earth. They were, they were normally crooks. And this tax collector, when he goes up and prays, he prays a, a much shorter prayer than the Pharisee. This prayer real short. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the people Jesus is talking to when he tells this story, he says, uh, who stands justified before God? The Pharisee or the tax collector? And Jesus blew their mind when he said it was a tax collector. Here's what that means for me and you. You've got to go beyond just acknowledging your sin, but to being broken over your sin in order to get into the kingdom. Jesus doesn't want people who are proud of their behavior in his kingdom. Rather, he wants people who are broken over their sin in his kingdom. That's how you get in. The other picture he gives us is of children. You've got all these children. They're they're coming to Jesus. Their parents are bringing them to Jesus left and right, just like politicians. He's bringing them to them, and these parents want Jesus to hold their precious little ones. And then all of a sudden, as these children are coming to Jesus left and right, his disciples come to those parents and say, Stop. Give Jesus a break here. Your little people really aren't that important. And Jesus gets really ticked. He's enraged, in fact. And he turns to his disciples, not to the parents, but to the disciples, and he says, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. So how do you get in? How do you get in this kingdom? How do you know the king? See, children exude dependence. Dependence. They know they need help. They know they can't do life on their own. Implication? Unless you're utterly convinced of your inability to get in the kingdom, unless you're utterly, conv- and you're also utterly convinced of the king's power to get you in, you will continue to stand on the outside of the kingdom. So, do you see how you get into this kingdom? Do you see how you know this king? Do you see how you become a witness who's filled by the Holy Spirit? You've got to be utterly dependent and utterly broken over your sin. That's how you get in. So friends, are you convinced of this helplessness? Are you convinced of your need for God's mercy because you're a sinner? If the answer is yes, here in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to this table. Because the ascended Jesus reigns on his throne, the witness of his people by the power of his spirit to extend his kingdom to the likes of knuckleheads like me and you. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray that your love would continue to perplex us, uh, would surprise us, uh, that you would pay attention, that you would be mindful of people like us. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, how we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.